while he's doing that, turn that there it goes. Turn to Isaiah chapter eight. If you're here last week, we're Isaiah chapter seven, and uh, we're doing two weeks of Christmas prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Uh, this morning is a stone of stumbling, and I appreciate. Uh, I'm going to not get the exact words, but uh, from the Advent reading, God wields an empire. Was it an empire? To bless his children, is that right? God wields an empire to bless his children. That's sort of what this is about this morning. God wielding not an empire, but empires, multiple empires, to accomplish his will and to bless his children. Have you noticed that that a lot of people just don't get Christmas? Have you noticed that? I would think if you have reverend in your name, you're more likely, perhaps, uh, to get Christmas, but I, I found this tweet uh, earlier this month, and she, this reverend says this, Christmas season is about God choosing a woman to lead a revolution of reorganizing the structures of societal power by her leadership, tenderness, and faith. What say you all? <laughs> no, no, absolutely, absolutely not. Some people just don't get Christmas. Uh, this is an old book now, but Uh, The War on Christmas. It's got a long subtitle, How the Liberal Plot to Destroy the Sacred Christian Holiday is Worse Than You Thought. Uh, Not surprisingly, the Harvard Business Review uh, blamed Fox News uh, for this war on Christmas. Not secularism, uh, but somebody who calls out the secularism. But this war is not just the commercialization of Christmas that everybody talks about, everyone complains about, rather this growing tide of secularism, secularism, which just continues to grow like a tsunami. And it isn't about whether somebody wishes you, you know, a Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. You know, that used to be more of a controversy, right? We've got much bigger problems, don't we, uh, on our plate this year than worrying about that. We're certainly not going to put the brakes on secularism by wishing the Walmart cashier a Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. It's just not going to do it. But if secularism is rising, it's because Christianity is declining, and whose fault is that? So we can cast stones at the secular world, but if we're not elevating Christ, if Christianity is declining, then we can't blame them. That is with us. Most people don't get Christmas. To use a biblical term, most people stumble over Christmas. And these three chapters in Isaiah, chapter 7, 8, and 9, which we won't be able to get to, chapter 9, this year, probably the best-known Christmas prophecies in the Old Testament. And the prominence of these chapters has been helped immensely, of course, by the continuing popularity of Handel's Messiah. Seven centuries before it happened, Isaiah predicted that Jesus would be born of a virgin miraculous birth. 730 years before the angels announced Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, Isaiah predicted that a child would be born and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. These are all reliable and certain predictions about Jesus and about Christmas. But with an equal amount of prophetic certainty, Isaiah also predicted that this newborn Savior would be, and now I'm in verse 14, 
I'm going to read all the way, uh, most of the way through Isaiah 8 eventually, but verse 14, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Do you see? Isaiah predicted that people would stumble over Jesus. Isaiah predicted that most people would just not get Christmas. Because Christmas is not about demanding rights. The first Christmas was about the Lord Jesus, creator of heaven and earth, who first gave up his rights long before he gave up his life. And Jesus had every right to sit on that divine throne for all eternity, but he left his throne and laid aside his rights in order to become a single-cell zygote. He laid aside his rights so he could be fully God and now also fully man. He laid aside his rights of infinite glory and infinite worship to be spit upon and hung from a cursed tree. And Isaiah predicted 700 years before it happened that this baby would save us, but also that most people would stumble over him and not understand. He predicted that most people simply don't get Christmas. If you're here with us last Sunday, you'll remember that these amazing Christmas prophecies were birthed in the context not of pastoral, uh, nice little scenes, but of a military alliances and conquest. If you remember, King Ahaz of Judah in the southern kingdom refused help from the Lord to save him uh, from the combined forces of Aram and Israel. Let me show you that map so you uh, know what's going on a little better there. So Jerusalem in the southern, that's, that's Judah, that's Ahaz. Uh, Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, very close, right, at least on this map, to Jerusalem. Damascus, uh, that's Aram, so we've got Israel and Aram uh, allied against Jerusalem or Judah in the south. And now you've got Assyria uh, to the far north, a world superpower that's also in play here. And uh, so they're combining forces, and remember, they already crushed both Aram defeated Judah and Israel defeated Judah, uh, killing 120,000 of the soldiers in Judah. And that was just a couple of years before this. Now they're combining together to descend upon Jerusalem. And unless they get help from somewhere else, Jerusalem and Ahaz were absolutely doomed. Now, what did the Lord do? He interceded here. He offered to defeat Judah's enemies. And remember last week, Ahaz was given the immense privilege of choosing the sign which would demonstrate that God was guaranteeing this military victory and the Lord's deliverance. And if you remember also, Ahaz, remember he's a very religious man, but, but what kind of religion is he? He was pagan. He was immensely pagan. He was a dedicated pagan. So he rejected the Lord's help and the Lord's sign and called upon this pagan nation of Assyria for help. And again, Assyria was the, the world superpower, and Ahaz knew full well that those armies could easily defeat the armies of Israel and Aram combined. So he begged, instead of begging the Lord for help or receiving that, he begged Assyria for help. Now listen, he had no love for Assyria whatsoever, right? Uh, they were his enemy just as much as these other two enemies. But like the old saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Ahaz was willing to strike a deal with his enemy Assyria in order to defeat his other enemies. Assyria wasn't threatening him at this time, so he wanted to use the, the big uh, bully on the block uh, to defeat the little bullies. And chapter 7 told us that Ahaz rejected the Lord and struck this deal with the pagan uh, Assyrian uh, king. And now chapter 8 is going to tell us uh, exactly what this looked like. 
So now I'm in verse 1 of chapter 8. The Lord said to me, now this is Isaiah speaking, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will call in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jeberechiah as reliable witnesses for me. Then I went to the prophetess, that's his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Before the boy knows how to say, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, that's Aram, and the plunder of Samaria, Israel, will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Here we have a, a really good illustration, right? In the birth of his son, Mehar Shalal Hashbaz. Now, preachers like good illustrations, right? I mean, I'll, I'll use... PowerPoint and some video, uh, I've done a little drama, even sung a song or two over the years, but I have never conceived a child as a sermon illustration. Uh, it's never happened, and, and obviously it's not going to happen either uh, going forward. But this is exactly what God asked of Isaiah, not once, but now a second time. Remember, last time, uh, the first child to be born, uh, likely, likely Isaiah's son, we're not absolutely certain, uh, the first, uh, first son was named, a remnant will return, and now this son, Meher Shalah Hashbaz, which means quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. Do you, do you see what's happening here? Do you, do you see uh, the foreshadowing of the name here? A remnant will return. Now, that's 70 years in the future. A remnant of Judah after they're carried into Babylon will return again, but this is now just, a, just a imminent, isn't it? Uh, swift to the uh, plunder. What was it again? Uh, quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. That was going to be happening very quickly. And as we saw last week, naming a child is the ultimate object lesson, and the Lord did not want anyone to miss this lesson. So what he told Isaiah was, he says, get a, your, your uh, version should say, a large scroll, a very large scroll. And what this was, was uh, don't think of like a little scroll that you can hold in your hand and unroll and unroll, but think of an enormous scroll. Think of like a banner that would go across uh, the back of the sanctuary here. A large banner so that all could see and write the name Mehar Shalal Hashbaz. And this was a headline news straight from the Lord's mouth. Isaiah predicted that before this child was old enough to say my mother or my father, which literally means here mommy or daddy, Assyria will have defeated Judah's enemies. Ahaz asked for Assyria to come and save them, but what happened next could be classified under the heading of you better watch out for what you ask for. You ever been in a situation like that? You ask for something and you realize, I probably shouldn't have asked for that. Uh, verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. So that's, uh, that's, again, the kings of Damascus and Israel. So they've rejected the Lord and they're rejoicing over uh, 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 Israel and, and uh uh, Aram, not rejo rejoicing over them because they're going to be defeated. Do you, do you see? Uh, they're rejoicing over the prospect of their imminent defeat. Now, now, here's the irony in all this. Judah rejected the Lord, begged help from pagan Assyria, and Assyria did eventually defeat Aram and Israel, but the Lord, of course, is the one who is controlling all this. 
They thought they had rejected God, but ironically, God was never not in control. Did you see that, right? Uh, even though he says, we don't want your help, God was orchestrating all of it behind the scenes. For example, why was Assyria the world superpower at that time? Only because God had raised them up to be the world superpower, and, they, and he raised them up to be the world superpower, not just to defeat Israel in this one battle, but if you remember last week, in about 15 or 20 years, Assyria was going to destroy Israel forever. There was no uh, rebound. There was no remnant to return to Israel. Once they were destroyed, that was the end of Israel, and that was imminent. But even closer still was this uh, first battle, this immediate battle. This lesson is that we can reject Jesus' title of king or kings, but we cannot escape his sovereign rule over us. If you tell God to, to shove off or more politely ask him to just ignore you or more politely just ignore him in your daily life, you may, have think, you may think that you claimed your independence from submitting to him, but you can never escape his sovereign rule over you because it's absolutely foolish to run from the Lord. It's foolish to ignore him because at that point you're, you're playing a game of self-deception and the only one who is deceived is you because you believe that you are in control and the problem is the only one that's fooled is you. And this was the game that King Ahaz was playing. After he called on a seer for help, he thought he was calling all the shots. I, I don't want help from the Lord. I want help from Assyria. Obviously, I'm in control. And of course, nothing could have been further from the truth. Picking it up at verse 7 again, Isaiah says, Therefore, because you reject the Lord and rejoicing over Assyria's uh, victory over your enemies, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty flood waters of the river, uh, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So since Judah rejected uh, what Isaiah here is calling the gentle waters of the Lord, the Lord is going to send mighty flood waters of the river. Now, in this case, the river was probably the Euphrates River. You saw on that map, that's the one that's closest to them, Euphrates and Tigris River, which, by the way, I didn't mention Assyria is modern-day what? What did you recognize that? Modern-day Iraq, right? It, was, it would become Babylon. Now, of course, it's modern-day Iraq. So the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates River uh, was about to descend upon them. Not actually the water, right? Uh, but the nation of Assyria. Uh, Isaiah used the image of floodwaters to depict the power of Assyria. So what he's saying essentially is, is says, so you want Assyria? Well, then I will give you Assyria. You are going to regret that you ever asked for this. So when Assyria went down to defeat Aram and Israel, they did not respect the borders of Judah and continued on down into Ahaz's territory. Ahaz didn't expect that, right? He says, come on down, just make kind of a, a laser kind of clean sweep. My, my enemy is just in the north. You know, just get rid of them. Make sure you stop. Don't come any further because we're down here. But you've got this massive army just tearing uh, down through the wilderness that's hard to stop, especially when they're the world superpower and they themselves are always hungry for more power. 
This uh, is similar to when the Israelites in the desert were not satisfied with God's daily provision of manna, so they complained to God saying, if only we had, what do they want to eat? If only we had meat to eat. Uh, We remember, uh, they said, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlics. Uh, But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Just a complaint. It's miraculous provision. Every day they wake up, they leave their tents. Manna all over the ground. They complained about it. Do you recall how God responded to their request for meat? Do you remember that? He sent a mighty wind and brought quail, blue quail into the camp. Three feet high worth of dead birds uh, began to quickly rot in their midst. So he's saying, you want Assyria? Okay, I'll give you Assyria. Listen again to this poetic description of judgment. It isn't interesting that judgment is given in a poetic form. Uh, Those things are sort of an oxymoron, aren't they? But here we have poetic judgment. It says, uh, repeating now, it will overflow all its channels, that, that river of massivus here, run over all its banks and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Now, we, we haven't seen, thankfully, a, a tsunami, the, the Asian tsunami in the early 2000s and nine or ten years ago, the Japanese tsunami, but, but we know, uh, even if you've never been to Living Waters and know how, how flood geology works, Uh, and the power of water. We know, even from those two things, the massive power of water that just uh, eliminates everything uh, that is in its path. Uh, So would Assyria flow into Judah and cause utter destruction. So Judah discovered that the enemy of my enemy is still my enemy, right? There might be some some friendliness attached to it, but the enemy of my enemy is, is still my enemy. A powerful enemy bent on conquest does not slow down easily. More importantly, Judah would discover the truthfulness of Isaiah's prediction that was written, remember, on this banner-sized scroll for everyone to see, Mehar Shalal Hashbaz, quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. But wonderfully, in this poetic prophecy of judgment, God would also show mercy in his judgment, because the floodwaters would only reach up to their what? To their neck, right? So they would not be themselves swept swept away. They would not be themselves uh, drowned. Uh, They would be ruined, but not destroyed. And I think this idea uh, of judgment or discipline or trials uh, sweeping up to our neck is, is really how many, it's a good word picture, I think, of our lives right now, right? Many of us feel like we are buried up to our necks. Remember as kids when you'd be in a swimming pool or a lake, you'd always go you know, deeper and deeper and deeper. Then you stand your tippy toes and you put your head way up and say, I'm still touching, I'm still touching the bottom. Yeah, I guess you were at that point. The waters, that, that, that's where we're at right now. We're like, tippy-toe, tippy-toe. I'm barely hanging on. I'm still barely breathing. The waters have not yet drowned us, but we're rising up on the tips of our toes, grasping for our next breath. I wonder how much that describes your life right now. 
Hopefully not for too many, but I know it does for many. And if it does, the solution is found in verse 8. As the flood waters rose up to their proverbial neck, Isaiah cried out, O Emmanuel. Isaiah cried out, O God, be with us. And as we saw last week, and you know this full well, that Emmanuel is the solution to all of our problems. Now listen, it might be your fault that you are buried up to your neck in problems. It may not be your fault at all. You might just be experiencing uh, the, the consequences of living in this fallen, sinful world. Or it may be a satanic attack of some kind. Regardless of the purpose or the cause of it, the solution is always to call upon Emmanuel. Call upon Emmanuel for salvation if you don't know him. Call upon Emmanuel in repentance if you have sinned. Call upon Emmanuel for strength when you are weary. If you are about to be drowned by the worries and cares of life, like Isaiah, cry out for Emmanuel. But most people will never, ever do this. They do not cry out for Emmanuel. Instead, they stumble over him. Jesus is the stone that causes men to stumble and the rock that makes them fall. Isaiah, that's from uh, chapter 8, verse 14. Paul quoted this verse uh, from Isaiah in Romans 9 to describe the Jews that were stumbling over Jesus while they were seeking righteousness of their own efforts and of their own works as opposed to a righteousness that comes by faith. Peter quoted this same verse in Isaiah to describe all those who, uh, who do not believe in Christ. And Jesus himself alluded to Isaiah when he wrote in Matthew 21, He who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but the one on whom it falls will be crushed. All those uh, direct quotes or allusions to Isaiah chapter 8. A rabbi warned, If a pot falls on a rock, woe to the pot. If a, ro- if a rock falls on the pot, let me, let me start that over again. If a pot falls on a rock, woe to the pot. If a rock falls on the pot, woe to the pot. Either way, woe to the pot, right? It doesn't matter then if you stumble over Jesus or if you are crushed by Jesus. Either way, it is a judgment upon your unbelief. So then why do so many stumble over Jesus in their unbelief? The prophecy of Emmanuel is supposed to bring uh, hope and belief, is it not? The same prophecy is available to all just as the fulfillment of this prophecy is available to all. So why do so many, in fact, almost all, the majority, stumble over Emmanuel? Part of the answer lies in verse 19. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Do you see what they were doing? They were uh, just diehard pagans. They were, they were consulting. Uh, they rejected God in favor of mediums and spiritists. Now, this may have been true for King Ahaz and Judah, but I'm guessing, now, now in our area, there's a little bit of that goes on, right, in our, in our New Age community, but the average person, your neighbor, is probably not engaged in this pagan uh, beliefs and consulting mediums and spiritists and, and con- conducting seances and calling upon the dead, as is described here. 
Uh, your neighbor may not be giving their hard-earned money to palm readers and, and crystal ball gazers, but, but listen, they get their truth from someplace, and that's ultimately what we're talking about here. It's ultimately about where do you seek your truth and how reliable is that truth, and Ahaz was seeking truth from paganism, from mediums and spiritists, and the average person, your neighbors, they get their truth from somewhere, Everyone lives by a set of beliefs, and if these pages do not come from the pages of God's word, these people will inevitably stumble over Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're a Muslim or a churchgoer who who knows the nativity story. You know everything. You know all the, the Bible stories. If you don't understand that Jesus is God in human flesh, come to save you from your sin, and there's no other way you will stumble over Jesus. It reminds me of lyrics from musician Michael Franti. Life is too short to make just one decision. Music's too large for just one station. Love is too big for just one nation. God is too big for just one religion. It's an all-too-common sentiment expressed even among those who would actually call themselves a Christian. People say, you know, all paths lead to God. Or if you're a Christian, you might say, I believe in Jesus, but, but I also believe there's other ways to God, to, to God because, you know, God would not uh, just eliminate most of the world. There has to be other ways to get to heaven. Those who reject God's word will stumble over Jesus every single time. And this is precisely what Isaiah prophesied in verse 20. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn, distressed and hungry. So this is describing anybody who is, who is not uh, walking according to God's word. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they'll be thrust into utter darkness. Isn't that amazing prophecy uh, of judgment? It sounds like it could be taken right out of the book of Revelation. People walk in darkness because they walk without the light of God's work, word. People cannot cry out for Emmanuel because they don't know who Emmanuel is. Most people will stumble over Christmas. Most people just don't get it. But there is a solution to the stumbling in the darkness. Isaiah called for it in verse 20. He says, To the law and to the testimony. And this, there's a battle about to go on here, but I would submit to you, this is a battle cry for the truth of God's word. This is a call to arms for every believer to carry forth the word of God. Why do you think God told Isaiah to write on that banner-sized scroll? Why did God tell Isaiah to name his son quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil? He did this because God's word is true and God's word is reliable. He did it because whatever God decrees will happen will indeed happen. And it has happened and will happen. Therefore, we should not be ashamed to call out to the law and to the testimony. Because we are people of this book and we stand upon the foundation of where stands it written. If anybody ever asks you a question, where stands it written? 
So whenever someone tells you that God is too big for just one religion, let me give you a question you can ask them. How do you know this is true? Simple question. How do you know that's true? If they believe that all paths lead to God, then it stands to reason that they themselves must be standing alongside of God and they can see everything that God sees that all these separate paths and all these religions indeed lead to God. So ask them, how do you know it's true? Do you stand in God's presence? Do you stand beside God and see what God sees? Now, if they're honest at all, of course they'll say, well, no, I don't. I don't stand in God's presence. So you ask them again, then how do you know that all paths lead to God? You see, the reason they believe that all paths lead to God is because they believe that all paths lead to God. Do you see? It's just this self-fulfilling prophecy in their own false beliefs. They don't have any outside authority for this belief. It comes from their own reason. They have set themselves up as the final authority for all truth. And as Christians, our truth comes from Scripture. And the Bible told us that there's only one way to God, and that is through Emmanuel. So how do people respond when you say this? When you say there's only one way to God, what, what, what do they call you? Arrogant, prideful, right? They think you're arrogant and foolish for believing the words in an old book like the Bible. But here's a question. Which is more arrogant, to set yourself up as the final arbiter of all truth or to follow a historically reliable book that claims to be the very word of God? This book, foretold of a child being born of a virgin. And it happened. This book foretold that many would stumble over the rock. And it has happened and is happening. This book foretold that the Messiah would be born of the tribe of Judah in the town of Bethlehem, that he would cause the rising and falling of many, that at his birth Jewish children would be massacred, that he would be a suffering servant pierced for our transgression and crushed for our iniquities. And it has happened. This book foretold all these things, and all of them has happened. So this is not an old book filled with fairy tales. It is the word of the Lord inscribed on an enormous scroll, the word of the Lord born into the names of Isaiah's sons, the word of the Lord made most plain and most beautiful through the coming of Emmanuel. So do not be ashamed of this book. Do not be ashamed of the one that prophesies uh, uh, from this book, Emmanuel, because without this book, we will stumble over Jesus every single time. So as Isaiah said, to the law and to the testimony, take up that battle cry that this is your only foundation uh, because it speaks of our only hope who is Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so often foolish. We imagine ourselves in control of our circumstances around us. We, like Ahaz in some ways, seek help from places other than you, usually our own strength, relying on our wits and our 
finances and our, our good health, our position in life to get us through. Father, help us to see that as utter foolishness and arrogance, that when life has worries and cares uh, sweeping into our, 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 our personal lives and it's all the way up to our neck, it's still not too late to cry out to Amanda, to cry out to Jesus for help. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd uh, stand together, please uh, read a final benediction. We won't be covering... Isaiah 9, but I thought we'd read this together. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Amen.